I'm Dr. Jasmine Rani, lecturer in international relations at the University of St. Andrews. We've been running a podcast series on Syria and the Syrian conflict. Today is the last in the series. For this final podcast, I'm delighted to be joined down the line by Dr. Alexei Karanovska from the University of Oxford. Hello, Alexei. Hello there. I'm Dr. Alexei Karanovska. I am an academic at the University of Oxford. I'm a fellow of Magdalen College and I work in the Department of Physics where I run a group which works on topics from fundamental physics through to the application of that physics to cultural heritage preservation. I'm also Director of Technology for an organisation called the Institute for Digital Archaeology and that organisation does a lot of work on the application of digital technologies to the representation, the exploration, the documentation, the preservation and the reconstruction of heritage objects. One of the projects that we have been working on over the last several years, so since the beginning of 2016, is one which looks at the application of technology to the reconstruction of objects which might have been damaged or destroyed. And these techniques are particularly applicable to architectural objects which have been damaged in the Syrian crisis. At the beginning of 2016, we created a project in collaboration with colleagues and friends in Syria to reconstruct one of the ancient monuments that was damaged in late 2015 on the Palmyra site in Syria. This object is a large Roman triumphal arch. It's a very beautiful structure, very interesting because it combines the characteristics of Roman architecture and Roman decorative design with those of Persia. And so just as Palmyra as a city is a crossing point of cultures, a place where different cultures mixed, traded and profited as a result of that multiculturalism, this structure if you like, is a symbol of that connectivity. Through a process of photogrammetry, we created a digital model of the structure, which we can then use to produce an actual physical reconstruction of the object. So we have a reconstruction of the arch, which is a little over a third scale. So it's about 20 feet tall. It weighs about 12 or 13 tonnes and it can be easily constructed and dismantled uh, for public display. We originally installed this on Trafalgar Square back in April of 2016 and since then it has travelled around the world so we've taken it to New York to City Hall Park, it's been to Dubai to the World Government Summit, it has been to Florence for the Cultural G7, it was sort of a visual centrepiece for the, the cultural meeting in Piazza della Signoria in Florence and it's also been on display in an Italian town called Arona which is up in northern Italy as part of of a big cultural celebration linked to cultural heritage preservation and, in particular, the life of the archaeologist Khaled al-Assad, who was the lead archaeologist on the Palmyra site for very many years and who very sadly was killed during the occupation of the site back in 2015. Photogrammetry is a process whereby you take two-dimensional images, photographs, and piece them together to create a full three-dimensional view of an object. The idea is that you capture photographs of that object from all different angles and you then combine them in software to produce a three-dimensional rendering of the object. 
once you have that three-dimensional rendering, what you can do is use it to create digital files which can be used to physically construct or reconstruct the object. One way you can do that is on a 3D printer of the kind that now you can buy and have in your home, but obviously the size of that object is going to be limited by the size of the printer, perhaps a few centimetres tall. But there are also techniques which allow us to take those processes to an architectural scale. One of them is architectural 3D printing, which is essentially a gigantic version of the desktop 3D printing concept. You have a large print bed onto which you lay down material in the shape that you would like your piece of architecture. The other is something called 3D machining where you essentially take a large block of material, in our case marble, and you remove material from that object until it is identical to the computer model that you have on the screen. So this is quite a powerful technique for structures like the Triumphal Arch in Palmyra, where there is a lot of decorative detail as well as the simple physical engineering structure. Thanks very much, Alexi, for that rich insight into the work that you're doing. Up until now in the podcast series, the focus very much has been on the political and the social dimensions of the Syrian conflict. Some might question how this discussion about the rich archaeology of Syria uh, relates to the conflict. And you mentioned that, of course, the Palmyra site was damaged in 2015. But this connection between art antiquities and politics is something that often gets overlooked, even though they are deeply interwoven. Scholars of politics and artists are concerned about similar subject matters, whether it's power, justice, society, war. But art also informs and is informed by identity and the image that's projected of the society. In many ways, when you're discussing the importance of preservation of cultural heritage, it does tie into the politics, the politics of identity of Syria and the importance of the history and this identity of cultural pluralism to what it means to be a Syrian. Absolutely. In the words of Mahmoud Abdul Karim, who until recently was the Director General of Antiquities and Museums in Syria and a huge supporter of the cause, that is, the protection of cultural objects against the backdrop of the conflict, the identity of the Syrian people resides in their connection to their heritage. And I think that's a statement which is not restricted to Syria. This is a general concept. Our sense of history and our relationship with the culture around us is what defines us as individuals, as members of a community, as citizens of the world. I think that it's the strength of those connections which is what makes this work and the protection of heritage important. It's not the physical objects themselves. The physical objects themselves are just symbols of very important relationships between people which exist in a way which transcends the boundaries of time, the restrictions of space and the fragility and mortality of the existence of individual humans. That's a very interesting point and it does touch upon a controversial debate that existed at the time, especially amongst Syrians, many of whom felt that there was 
a lot more attention given to the destruction of Syrian antiquities in that particular period of time by um, the Islamic State, Daesh, than had been given to the abuses of the regime and the deaths of civilians. They argue that this somehow represented a disregard for human life in favour of something which was an inanimate object. From what you're saying, it's a lot more complicated than simply disregarding human life and only focusing on the archaeology, but actually there's a connection between Syrians themselves and preserving their cultural heritage. Oh, absolutely. And I would say that from a personal perspective, and I know from the perspective of the director of our organisation, Roger Michael, this is not really a project which is about archaeology, not in the sense of the protection of, of physical objects. What it's really about is raising awareness of the big bigger issue here, and that is the sanctity of human life, the fact that people from all cultures experience the same relationship with the concepts of history, of heritage, that through an understanding, I think, of the fact that these connections and these emotions exist for all of us in different ways in connection with the built heritage around us or the material heritage around us. I think what we can do is draw people's attention to this bigger issue, which is one of making sure that people have what you might call a kind of pan-cultural compassion, despite the fact that we live in a hyper-connected world now, the sad truth is that people still feel able to distance themselves from the crises of other people in other nations. Sometimes perhaps they don't recognise the human cost of the news that they see on the television or hear on the radio. Sometimes by putting people in a situation where they intuitively realise that they have something shared with that group of people. So in this case, when we install it, the arch in these various different places, one of the first reactions that most people have is, wow, that's beautiful. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, where your parents grew up, what you did, you still have that reaction intuitively. And I think that through that intuitive reaction, people are able to relate better to the horror of the humanitarian problem, not just in Syria, but in other places where there are similar threats to people's well-being and also to their sense of who they are. Mm. That's a really fascinating point. Have you encountered Syrians on your travels who have uh, given you their reaction? Absolutely. In fact, this is possibly the greatest pleasure of the project. We had many people who visited the structure in London who travelled from all over Europe. Uh, so there was a group of young Syrian people who had come from Paris to visit over the few days that it was on Trafalgar Square. One of the last groups to go and visit it when it was up in London was from one of the embassies. They were actually Syrian nationals who'd been living in London for a while and for reasons of work had not been able to get out during working hours to come and see it. Uh, so I was able to make sure that it stayed on the square long enough for them to come and see. The same is true in New York, where not just young Syrian people, but I think young Muslim people feel a little bit at sea at the moment. I spoke to young Muslim people whose parents came to the US many years ago. They've grown up in the United States. They feel American, but they also feel a strong sense of identity and connection from the region they're from. Their responses and reactions to what we're doing feel as though they underline the value of just trying to show people the similarities rather than the differences between themselves and people of other cultures. As an academic working on 
politics of Syria, I find one of the challenges is ensuring that my work does not get co-opted by various political sides and that I maintain that independence in the work that I put out, what I'm trying to say. I can imagine that's a similar challenge that you must face as well. The Syrian regime has been quite vocal in arguing that the preservation of culture and archaeology in Syria is an argument for maintaining the status quo because they are the ones who can ensure that protection of that cultural heritage and that those who are challenging the regime would actually endanger it and threaten it. How do you prevent the work that you're doing from getting co-opted by different political voices? Yeah, I think that's a very important point and it's something that we try very, very hard to prevent because the work that we do, particularly in the public sphere, but also in the background, we run many projects in Syria and in neighbouring countries that involve local communities. We work a lot in the area of cultural documentation, equipping photographers to do surveys and also generally supporting organisations that have a similar sort of mission. It's very important not to become co-opted as a perfect word by one or other side. One way that I think this can be done is to try not to affiliate oneself with organisations that have a particular political mission. In some cases, that's hard because obviously you're dealing in a, with a situation where there are essentially two well-defined sides. And it tends to be the case that if you're on one side, you're clearly not for the other side and vice versa. So one of the things that we try to do is to avoid being seen to work with organisations which have put themselves in very obvious opposition to the other side. So different organisations have different approaches to trying to be productive on one or other side, and some are more or less confrontational than others. So one thing that we try to do is not to work with organisations which have a confrontational approach, not because we don't think necessarily that they're doing good work, but just because to do that puts us in a very difficult position because whatever we will do will be seen to be part of one side of that conflict. The other thing which can be done is to try to stress wherever possible the fact that these are projects which are about the people of Syria, irrespective of what kind of political stance they might have or what beliefs they might hold. What we're trying to stress are the fact that there's a human story here which transcends politics or which side of the fence you're on. But it is a very tricky environment to navigate. And I think it's also true, as I can imagine it is with your own work, that whatever you do, your work will be co-opted because if it's powerful and it can be used to message a political concept, then it simply will be used to do that. Thanks, Alexi. The work that you've mentioned has focused on the Palmyra Arch, where the entire area was very much politicised because of the presence of ISIS. Are there other areas in Syria where you've also been working? Absolutely. We have a large documentation project which is happening in northern Syria, in Idlib, which is looking at lesser known sites and the documentation of structures which were not well known before the conflict and in many cases were under threat from agriculture and general development in the countryside. We're very excited to be working with local communities as part of that project. And I very much hope that as the situation in the country becomes more stable, we'll be able to include participants from a much broader area within Syria. 
We've run educational workshops in Damascus, and that's something that we are hoping to do in a big way this summer. We've done that very successfully at the Damascus Museum. It's nice at the moment to be able to give children who are otherwise living in very challenging situations the opportunity to have a fun day doing some sort of culture-related activities and also to give them a sense of connection with the rest of the world. So we do a lot of projects which involve working with children in different countries and connecting them together either through letters or online or simply conceptually by sharing each other's work and talking about the similarities between the kinds of things that are important to them. So in a way, it's not just about preserving the past, but from what you're describing, it's very much an investment in the future and not just a physical reconstruction, but emotional rehabilitation, especially of the younger generation that you're involved with. That's absolutely right. That connection between the history or the past and the future, I think, is one which is perhaps the most important concept within what we do. So it's this idea that history is not just something that belongs to the past. It's the beginning of a kind of narrative arc which exists well into and beyond the immediate future that we might be able to imagine. And people's relationship with their history has a huge influence on the kinds of situations in which they can imagine themselves in the future. There is a sense in which the ambitions of our children, what they believe that they can achieve or the kinds of people that they believe that they can be, are incredibly strongly influenced by their relationship with their history and the concept of identity that comes from that. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why children are so traumatised by experiences of conflict. We're talking on a conceptual level about something quite specific, that is their relationship with their knowledge of the history of their own culture. But it's also true that the formative experiences of children, although they may belong to the past, as far as their existence is concerned, have a huge effect on their subsequent lives. So it's finding ways of trying to help people to remain connected with the historical narrative that informs their identity and also trying to infuse this very challenging situation with a kind of optimism about what the future holds. Yes, because a war, of course, is so destabilising and completely upends everything that they would have known in their lives up until the conflict that being able to restore some kind of continuity and connection to the Syria that existed before the conflict must provide some reassurance for the locals, for the civilians. I think that's right. And I think that hope and shared hope, I've come to realise, is an incredibly powerful and important thing. This has been an incredible journey for me because before I started to work on these projects, I worked on physics, which was fascinating. And I still work on fundamental projects. That's what defines my expertise as a scientist. They're fascinating. The way in which they enable us to deconstruct the beauty of the world is something that's very, very important to me as an individual. But they really don't matter to anyone in terms of the sort of heart and soul connections that we see with these projects. So working in this kind of area has had a really big influence on the way that I think about my professional life and the kind of contribution that I would like to make. One of the things that I noticed when I started to work with Syrian people on our projects was that they were disappointed for two reasons. Firstly, that they felt, as you 
have mentioned yourself that the international community was not taking enough notice of the terrible humanitarian situation in their country, but also that the international community had simultaneously written off their country as a place where things were a disaster, only bad things were happening. Both of those things are equally devastating. The West needs to realise, the rest of the world needs to realise that this is a problem which will have a resolution. And after that, there will be a process of reconstruction and a process by which people can return to normal life and one has to be positive. Of course, the Syrian conflict followed quite soon after the conflict and the destruction to cultural heritage in Iraq, right on its doorstep. Do you think that there were lessons learnt from what happened in Iraq which have actually been of use with the cultural preservation in Syria? And do you see that actually there will be further lessons learnt from your experiences of engaging in this work if there were, although we hope not, but if there were similar situations in the future? I think that's a really, really interesting question. I don't think enough was learned from Iraq. I think also that we've seen a big shift much more recently in people's attitudes and approaches to both safeguarding heritage and appreciating its significance. So my own sense is that things might have been done differently had the international community realised the scale of the destruction which was possible by terrorist organisations. I think even after Iraq, people just didn't quite see the massive scale destruction of monuments happening, which is interesting because everybody knew that the technology existed to do that. This large-scale destruction, unfortunately, is accessible to anyone who is able to go and buy modern explosives. But I do have the sense that now people are really learning from this. And I think that we're seeing this in the very serious discussions that are being had within the United Nations, for example. So last year, we saw the resolution relating to the protection of cultural property. We've had the destruction of cultural property identified as a crime against humanity. And I think that in terms of the development of measures to try to prevent this stopping again, we've come a long way in the last two years. Um, it's just a shame that it took this scale of devastation to get us to that point, I think. Thank you, Alexi, for your rich insight into the work that you do and adding, I think, an important, often neglected perspective on the Syrian conflict. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's been an absolute pleasure. As mentioned at the start, this is in fact the last in the series on Syria. I very much hope that it has nurtured a deeper interest in the politics and the history and the culture of a wonderful, rich, diverse country that is Syria.